welcome once again to the Ashley Webster Experience alongside uh, Brian Solomon, our trusty producer. Hello to you, Brian. And we have a special guest today, Mark Stein. He's a Canadian author, a political commentator, all-around good guy. But, of course, I want to focus on being Canadian. What's that like? Uh, it's we, we are the privileged people of the Western world. Um, the Mordecai Richler used to say Canadians can they're, – they're, they're what everybody thinks the international Jewish conspiracy is. <laughs> Canadians can go everywhere. They can pass across borders and seamlessly fit in and people barely notice them. Like in the United States, in the UK, right. in France, wherever they are. And if you notice – uh, actually, some guy did actually wrote a column about that, I think, in the Boston Globe about <laughs> three weeks after 9-11 when they were talking about all these people agitating for a big new war on terror. And he said, what right. do they have in common? Charles Krauthammer, David Frum, Mark Stein. They're all Canadian. Uh-huh. No wars for Canadians. No. Mm. I've always mistrusted them. I always felt that they were supposed to be our friends. Mm. And we mm. always are focused on the southern border, of course, yeah, Mark. Yeah. But, you know, a <laughs> there will actually be, the There will actually be a wall on the northern border <laughs> long before this one. Because you know... <laughs> but will Canada pay for it? Yeah. <laughs> That porous no. northern border. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there will be one on the 49th parallel long before there's one on the Rio Grande. You can bet on that. All right, we're going to come back to the Canada mm. thing because it's always a, a great source of humor and enjoyment. Mm. Um, but you've made a name for yourself. I was looking at your your uh, bio, Mark, and you started really as a, an arts critic. Is that right? I, I started uh, uh, as a disc jockey, and uh, I... In those, I mean, people don't really have disc jockeys now because they just no. say, "Here's another twenty-three mm-hmm. in a row on <laughs> smooth and easy ninety-seven point one," and then you like go away for forty minutes. But in those days, um, I, I, I was, for example, I think one of my first jobs, I was pitching for a sort of easy listening kind of show, and I mm-hmm. went in and uh, I'd misunderstood the ad, and the guy actually was looking for a guy who did a classical show. I didn't really know anything about classical music but I said oh yeah sure figuring I could bone up on it in the next 10 days and I'd be fine and uh, actually that taught me a a good lesson which is that as you know you can bluff your way through almost anything in life and uh, expertise can be very lightly worn uh, once you learn to pull that trick off Uh, but the but the thing I we ever need in life is a lab coat and a clipboard that's That's what I've been told people will believe you regardless yeah no no it's it's very true and I found that so I did a lot of different uh, formats and then uh, as is the way of things I got fired and had no money and if you You've got fire, and if you've been fired and you've got no money and you've got no skills, uh, mm-hmm. then uh, writing and journalism and media work is about the only thing you can do. <laughs> and again, I'm not telling from. you anything you don't know. <laughs> anything we got here, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> my life. <laughs> and, um, and so, uh, and so, I started writing, and I, I, I did write mainly on the arts, music, theatre, film for a while. I was, I was always uh, political, and my political views haven't changed. Uh, and then I just, uh, you know, I, sta- I started drifting into uh, political commentary. But left to my own, de- if we lived in a peaceful, happy world, right. um, I'd just be pottering down the musical end and enjoying myself. But one thing that, I mean, those things are connected. 
uh, in the sense that if you look at what ISIS, uh, that thing a couple of years ago when ISIS uh, seized some musicians, I think it was in northern mm-hmm. Libya, yeah. and they burned all their cellos mm-hmm. and violins on the beach. Or if you look at the Taliban, where they actually made it illegal uh, to listen to music. Mm. They banned music in Afghanistan. If you look at pictures of Kabul in the 60s, there's all these girls in miniskirts in the record shop. Uh, buying Beatles records? Yeah, buying Beatles mm-hmm. records. They're looking, they look like they could be in Carnaby Street, yeah. but in, instead uh, they're on Allahu Akbar Street in Kabul, <laughs> and they're, and they're <laughs> listening to these uh, the latest uh, swinging singles. And, and so the... I always think of that because what it's telling you is that uh, politics isn't just the geopolitical picture. It it eventually reaches down and wrecks all the small pleasures in life, too. Mm. So even if you just want to sit around and uh, listen to music all day, unless you're paying attention to the big things, uh, the Taliban will come swaggering into town and, and wreck it for you. You're yeah. also a singer. Sorry, Brian, I just want no. to mention, we're talking about music, just to continue on this theme. You're a singer. Um, you have a CD out. I've yeah. seen, in fact, I've seen a video. Right. Now, videos, of course, were very big back in the 1980s, but yeah. this was a classic. Wasn't it like a fog machine and the whole thing? Yeah, I actually made a... I decided to do... I, I made a, an album of cat songs, and, and, and if you make an album of cat songs, there's certain ones people expect you to have on there. Like, I taught I taught a putty tat, which was the big Looney Tunes song right. that uh, Tweety and Sylvester were running yes. around to for decades. And I didn't want to do it in that Mel Blanc, I taught I taught a putty tat. And I couldn't think Would've of... Funny. I couldn't. Well, I didn't think so because he does Mel yeah. Blanc better than any. And I was. I couldn't think of any way to do it. And I was driving around, and I happened to just be two retuning stations, and I hit some oldies station, and I heard uh, Sting and the Police doing "Every Breath You Take," yeah. and I listened to the uh, whatever it is, the bass line at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I thought. Wait a minute, bum, bum, this bum. is yeah. I taught I taught a putty a doom doom doom. <laughs> and so I did I basically did I taught I taught a putty tat in the style of Sting and the police. <laughs> uh, which you can when you call when you actually phone the your arranger uh, and yeah. say, Hey, listen, I've got it. I, uh, okay. And, and they he, hang up. And he yeah, they hang up and think when when you know, when he's come out of his drug bender and he's, woke, he's woken up trouserless in the dumpster, he'll have so it up and he'll tell me something. But we actually did it in the style of uh, Sting, Sting yeah. and Every Breath You Take. And and so I thought I'd make a 1980s uh, rock video to go it's with classic. it. Classic. So uh, that's kind of about as hip as I get is that I make a 1980s rock video. Are you 35 wore a raincoat years in that or something? Yeah, I wore, I, wore a, uh, I wore a trench coat. Yeah. That's right. You'd be yeah. surprised. Oh, was it in a warehouse or what was it in an well, alley? What was no, it? It, was like, it was like in an abandoned, scuzzy <laughs> block. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you must have had a lot of fun doing that. No, I, I did have a lot. And funnily enough, I mean, I make no claims. For for my, that cat album did uh, very well. At one point, he was out selling the uh, "I'm all about that bass uh, <laughs> oh, lady." Yeah. At one point, uh, you know, I'm all, uh, and, which I'm all was, about the cats. Yeah, baby. and uh, and a and actually a, tr- a, f- a friend of mine who's a twelve time Grammy winner, Ooh. and I won't embarrass her by naming her, but she she had a new album out, and she just like went to Amazon to 
Sierra was doing. And she was like amazed that it was like seven places behind my lousy <laughs> cat. cat. And she goes, that thing keeps on <laughs> selling. Well, and you know what? I, know, I feel bad. You know, As I said, she's a 12-time You're Grammy apologizing. winner. You're <laughs> apologizing. And there's actually, you know the way it is at the Grammys now? Because they've got like yeah. Grammys for everything. There's like, you yes. know, best, yes. best liner notes for a, <laughs> for a gangster rap album for a gangster rapper who hasn't yet Coast. been shot <laughs> on the West Coast. And there's like, but there's actually no category for me. <laughs> there's no animal pets. <laughs> and so, because uh, so, even Hillary, uh, Bill Clinton, both Clinton, this is how ridiculous it is. Come on, come both on. Clint, Bill Clinton, uh, Hillary Clinton got a Grammy for... Um, it takes a village to raise a child. She got a Grammy for that. Yeah, that's like a Grammy for most uneasy listening or something. <laughs> uh, and uh, and the um, and Bill Clinton got a Grammy because he was the narrator on Peter and the Wolf by oh. Prokofiev, which is ludicrous. Uh, of course, because, he played I the wolf. Grammy. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's typecasting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now, now, for, now you live in New Hampshire, right? That's right, yeah, yeah. I get this vision, Mark, sometimes when I, I heard that, that you live in New Hampshire. It's kind of like Ted Kaczynski was holed up in some cabin uh, in the middle of Montana. You're doing the same thing. You're kind of held up in this little uh, wood cabin in the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire. And instead of railing against technology and computers, you're railing about the progressives and the right, left right, and the right. nuttiness that they put out. Um, is that accurate? You're kind of out there in the woods thinking things through? Yeah, I, I am really. And I do. Uh, I, my beard gets sort of <laughs> Unabomber-like. And, and then when I come uh, to New York and and uh, appear yes. with you on Fox Business. I yes. get it, like, trimmed, so I look more like the uh, assistant choreographer on La Cage au Fall or whatever. You and do, I, actually, yes. Yeah, and I, so I like to keep it in... Uh, it's, a que it's a question uh, uh, of keeping it in balance. But I, do, I think that's... Uh, when I started writing about America, for example, mm. for uh, British, Canadian, Australian newspapers... Um, most of those uh, foreign correspondents are, are in New York, Los Angeles, or Washington. And mm. I think it, it, to be somewhere that's not one of those three cities gives you a perspective on uh, things that a lot of those people just in the big Washington bureaus don't see. They're in a bubble. Yeah. And I... Uh, I mean, it seemed to me uh, uh, perfectly obvious uh, that Trump... In fact, I think I said Trump was going to win in September 2015 on <laughs> Alan Combs's yeah. uh, radio show. Um, and the, I, I didn't say that because I particularly uh, thought he was brilliant or whatever, but it seemed to me that he had identified something in, uh, in, in rural American life that uh, other people had not... Mm. Seen, and that's obvious if you just where I happen to live. Uh, if you drive fifty miles in any direction, you you can see what he's talking about, and yeah. I think that I think that's useful. Being in that sense, being being in the woods, being covered in plaid, uh, letting your assistant choreographer beard grow out. I mean, that <laughs> is all actually quite useful for for seeing what's going on. Do you know you use humor to great effect um, because many a true word is said. You know. Mm. Um, with wit, do you find you have to change your style of humor to the American audience, to the UK audience, to the Australians, to the Canadians, or is it all pretty much the same? 
it's, it's different in the variants. I covered the mm. impeachment trial of uh, Monica, Lewins- uh, Monica Lewinsky for President Clinton's impeachment. And uh, the, um, th- my editors in Toronto, London, elsewhere were, uh, went behind my back because uh, I wanted to be put up at the Mayflower, which was actually a brilliant move, um, uh, because Monica actually checked into the Mayflower Perfect. when she testified. I was the only uh, reporter on the inside. Uh, but, of course, they wanted to screw me over and have me staying in the Econo Lodge around yes. the back of the freight yards. <laughs> yes. And, um, and so, uh, uh, so uh, when I found I found out just as I checked into the Mayflower that they were going to screw me over for the day. So on the first day of the impeachment trial, yeah. uh, I put all my Canadian jokes in the London column, all my Australian <laughs> jokes in the Toronto column, and all my UK jokes. <laughs> and uh, I think I. I don't actually, I don't, I don't, I think you reach a certain point where, I mean, I like to be, I don't really have a philosophical view on it, but I like to be funny about the big things. Mm. And what I always uh, disliked about uh, American newspapers, for example, is you'd have like, um, if you opened up uh, a typical op-ed page, Mm. they'd, they'd have three columns, you know, the foreign policy guy, the one talking about the new report from the Fed, uh, and, and one dealing, uh, with inner city crime. And then there'd be a guy in the bottom right-hand corner being funny about barcode scanners at supermarkets. Right, right. And I always thought the, 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 the great thing is to be funny about the the big, big things, stories about yeah. the important things. If you can't be, you know, uh, so I like to be funny basically about the collapse of our <laughs> civilization because <laughs> might as well go down laughing. Yeah, and whoever and whoever's left to prowl around in the rubble, whether it's the jihad guys or the uh, aliens from Planet Zongo, they're going to be laughing their heads <laughs> off at the way we did this to ourselves. So I, I think that's actually quite important. Yeah, who are uh, which. Uh, audience is more receptive. Are the is the American audience more receptive to your humor? Because we had Steve Hilton on the show, and I asked him. I said, you know, which press is is harsher? You know, the British press or the American press? And he said, oh, the British is you know yeah. off the charts. Yeah, yeah. But you know, you're part of the the press that makes light of this. And so, who do you think is more receptive to your comedy? Well, no, I would or to I, your humor. I I think. Uh, I think that's right. That generally, the, that uh, in the UK and in Australia, there's a, there's a sort of open viciousness that, yes. that people that, that that people like. Um, I'm always interested in what like what's specific to audiences. My my managers in Amer- uh, my managers American, and she accompanied me once. First time she accompanied me north of the border was to an event in Ottawa. Uh, and I was speaking in Ottawa, and I did like, uh, I did like uh, uh, a new governor general had just been appointed, mm-hmm. and uh, Ashley will know what that yes. is. It's like a vice-regal eminence. You won't know what it is. <laughs> no. And I'm not going to uh, try Big the title. patience of your listeners by explaining <laughs> But, like, so I stand up, and I do, like, 15 minutes of gags about the Marquis of Dufferin, who was, uh, like, uh, who was, like, governor general in uh, the late 19th century. And my American managers, I, it's a sea of laughing faces, except for 
of my American manager who's <laughs> sitting there thinking, what the hell is this? And she's asking me about this afterwards. I'm going, the Marquis of Dufferin, it's comedy gold. We'd be, <laughs> we'd be killing it in Cleveland if I used this stuff. <laughs> and uh, and I, li- I, I always think... I always think there's like a particular uh, there's a there's a particular pleasure when uh, and, and audiences like it yeah. uh, again because it's like they know it's something that's just for them mm-hmm. that right. you've that and, and that's different from you know and and particularly if you 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 know this that mm. if you're Canadian or, or if you're Australian or whatever and the big the big stars are always from elsewhere so when they yes. come mm. they come jetting in uh, you know. <laughs> They're just uh, doesn't matter whether it's yes Tom- to talk about climate change. Yeah, yeah. The irony, yeah. They yeah. jet everywhere. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And they and they're talking about it on their terms. And yes. people 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 just always like it if there's a moment that's just for them. But uh, yeah, to so make it personal. Yeah, yeah. And that's it. So, how does a Canadian living in New Hampshire have a British <laughs> accent? I'm going to ask that question. Well, I I, I spent part of my childhood uh, in uh, in England, and I was at uh, J.R.R. Tol. Or old school, oh, yes. and um, and uh, so it, how cool it, is that? Yeah, it, <laughs> it is. Uh, it is quite cool, actually. I wrote him a letter when I was a very small boy, and I was thrilled to get he a reply. Got a reply. Really? Yeah. Yes. What do you say? And uh, well, he, I was just asking him about a particular. I think it was to do with the Silmarillion, which was the. As you uh, in, do. Incompleted, yes. <laughs> the uncomplete thing after. Yeah. Uh, but I remember um, reading uh, The Hobbit. Uh, I think it was oh, yeah. at the age of seven or something. Mm-hmm. And so, so I was always, and of course now, uh, people don't, after the movie was made, yeah. people think Absolutely. like J.O.R. Tolkien, he was like this New Zealander. And yeah. Like, yeah. The script, Kiwi, the script writer from New yeah, Zealand. Yeah. He's like the Kiwis are like cleaning up. They're like running these. Oh, is this uh, is this where Joe uh, Tolkien had his first screenwriting office? Yes. And they were, they were they, it's funny, but it's true. Unfortunately, yeah. so. I, this age of Donald Trump, you predicted that he'd win, but for those that make their living, well, looking satirically at things, it's an absolute goldmine from late night, you know, comedians mm-hmm. to yourself. There's so much material all the time. Well, I'm actually not sure about that because I think nobody is funnier than Donald Trump himself. Yes, he's, and I, th- I yes. think that's actually what the what drives the left nuts. I mean, you you look at these late night comedy shows; they've got like uh, 300 gag writers, and they're trying to get a joke on Donald Trump. Mm. And Donald Trump's actually out there every day doing all the best jokes Beating them to the punch himself. <laughs> and and I, that, that was something. I think it was uh, about two weeks before the New Hampshire primary. I went to see Donald Trump uh, on stage in the heart of Bernie Sanders' fiefdom mm-hmm. in Burlington, Vermont, uh, because my kids wanted to see him. My daughter had gone and seen him in, in New Hampshire, and, uh, and she'd had a real laugh. And so <laughs> there's not a lot of real laugh to no. see on stage in Vermont, yeah. New Hampshire. So the boys wanted to go. So we go along, and there's all their schoolmates on 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 Main Street in Burlington. It's cleaved in two. There's anti-Trump protesters, pro-Trump protesters. Mm-hmm. Has this great party town atmosphere. <laughs> My kids are running into school friends who are denouncing Trump, pro-Trump. <laughs> it's fantastic. And uh, this guy, as we're making our way toward the door, this guy says, do you want to come and see the Trump-prov night, which is 
improv comedy <laughs> about Trump. Uh, and, uh, and so he's handing out free tickets, and we take them yeah. to be polite. And I say, we're not gonna, I say to the boys, we're not going to go to that. Because right. you know what it's going to be, lame hair jokes, and that's mm-hmm. we go in. Trump, Trump comes – well, uh, we went backstage to say uh, hello, hello, hello mm-hmm. to him. And he's like the most lightly entouraged political candidate I've ever seen. In the, I've seen guys running for state rep. Uh, in, <laughs> have a bigger posse. Uh, yeah, who have, and he's just got like Corey Lewandowski, yeah. Hope Hicks, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, and he's not uh, – normally when you go – you're there just beforehand. People say, oh, we're getting a statement from yes. uh, Kim Jong-un on his latest uh, – we, we, we prepared a position for you. We've run it past the photo. Yeah. And they're like, all uh, – Trump's just like there having a laugh. He comes out on stage then and he just starts riffing on the day's news. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, he's like talking, and he's like talking about Martin uh, Martin O'Malley. Yeah. Do you remember, he was yes, the guy yes. running against Hillary, yeah. right? And he goes, and he just starts talking about how he'd been, uh, he'd seen this Martin O'Malley thing, where only one. He goes, "This is a fabulous crowd. Yeah. I just saw this Martin O'Malley hit a rally. <laughs> only one guy showed up, <laughs> and he's in New Hampshire, and he's sitting there, and Martin O'Malley's like talking uh, to him." about what his position is just to the one guy for like an hour and a quarter. And at the end of it, the reporter from Channel 9 says, so are you considering voting for Mr. O'Malley now? And the guy says, "Uh, no, not really. (laughs) And that's like, we're all falling around, weeping with laughter. Karl Rove, I'd heard Karl Rove the day before, and he'd, on Fox, he'd been sent, well, you know, the important thing at this stage, where a week from Iowa, two weeks from New Hampshire, what's critical now is time management. If you're not staying ruthlessly on message, uh, you're just wasting uh, your time. And that just diminishes the time you have to get your real message out. So it's all about a week before Iowa, two weeks before New Hampshire. It's all about message discipline and using it. And... Nowhere in that model of campaigning does it say, do 20 minutes of shtick on Martin O'Malley. Stand up comedy. And Trump, uh, Trump did us all a huge service in just yeah. blowing through. I mean, I, I, I like Karl Rove. I respect yeah. Karl Rove. Mm-hmm. But there's something beautiful just to see some guy come in and demolish He is all always, yeah. you know, untethered, mm. unplugged. Yeah. Um, and... That analogy, I think, Mark, mm. applies to everything he does. Mm. He's off the cuff. Yeah. He speaks from the heart. He's honest. Right. right. Uh, gets him in trouble sometimes. Mm. I understand that. But, you know, things happen. All of a sudden, we have North Korea saying, well, maybe we do want to talk. Right, right. Um, you know, and the people who la- have been laughing at Donald Trump, they're going to have to stop at some point because he's getting stuff done. I think, I think, that's, I think that's true. Um, you know, I, I only know why I think my neighbors supported him. Mm. I don't make any great claims for universal expertise. Mm. But I think the problem is, is that the the kind of house-trained way of doing things has been terrible for large numbers of people in, in this country. Mm. And one of the things I find odd, I mean, there's two statistics I find really uh, Odd, and that's the the shrinking um, social mobility in America. Yeah. Because if you have to actually say what the American dream is, 
That's what it is. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're the, the whole point about America is that uh, if you were a, a, a peasant in 12th century Poland, your great 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 grandkids were going to be a peasant in 14th century Poland, right, and right. their great 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 grandkids were going to be a peasant in 17th century Poland. And one day, one of them gets on a boat to Ellis Island, and he lives in a tenement on the Lower East Side, and his kid moves uptown, and his grandkid uh, becomes a doctor in Westchester County, right. and his great grandkid goes to Harvard, and then the great-great-grandkid uh, becomes an environmental activist who wants to <laughs> shut down economic opportunity for everyone, and the cycle begins yes, all indeed. over again. Yes. Um, but basically, if, so if you don't actually have social mobility, you don't have an American dream. Yeah. Right. And I think that's uh, and I, I uh, so I think that's a problem. And then I think what you also see in large swathes of rural America is uh, downward mobility, actual mm. where people who had people whose grandparents worked at, on farms and whose parents worked in mills, uh, and now they've got a daughter who does a minimum wage job at right, the quickie crack, and the the son is uh, you know on meth or heroin or whatever. The downward mm. mobility is like really, and I think that's. You can't keep telling though. You can't keep telling those people um, that you whether whether it's the left or right that everything matters about them. You know, really, that should be a Democrat thing. They yeah. should be, Dem yeah. but they, whenever they listen to Democrats, Democrats are talking about you know transgendered bathrooms or something. You know, right, in other words, right. something that you know they're talking about uh, boutique niche demographics yeah. that yeah. are barely discernible. And in the meantime, there's millions and millions of people yeah. uh, who have ruined lives. I find well, it. Yeah. Go ahead, Brian. No, well, isn't that especially the point that? <laughs> President Trump made with the African Americans in this country, saying, you know, this, the, that's supposed to be the Democrats helping you guys out, saying, hey, we're going to come into the inner cities and help out. Right. And instead, they're focusing on transgender bathrooms. That's yeah. exactly the point he was making. And now you see the lowest unemployment rate in history for African Americans. Yeah. No, no. I think, I think that's true. I think there's a lot of... Um, well, almost all kind of liberal do-gooding is about the do-gooder rather than the people they're doing it to. Yeah. And it's great to be the do-gooder. And if you're on the receiving end, uh, you're getting seriously done and there's not a lot of good in it. And mm -hmm. it's, That's very uh, true. Uh, well, I think what fascinates me too, Mark, is that the Democrat Party to me was always supposed to be the kind of gentler for the people party mm. as opposed to the rich, uncaring, capitalist mm. pigs on the Republican right. side. But what has, what has really got to me, I think, and, and since Donald Trump has come onto the political scene, is that a conservative voice is instantly racist mm. and everything, every other name under the sun. And when you look at college campuses uh, and the reaction that conservative speakers have, they're, they're heckled, they're riots, they come in, they shut them down. Um, it appears to me that that Democrat side to things, the progressive side, that the, the need to shut down the conservative voice has become laughable. Right. And I'm not sure what they're so afraid of. 
Well, I think somehow, <clears throat> I don't think free speech has any purchase on people under a certain age. Um, mm. you'll, you'll find liberals of 60, 70, whatever, who will say, well, I, they do the apocryphal Voltaire quote, I disagree with what you say, but I'll fight to the yes. death. But then when you go in the other direction, you go in 40, 30, and you reach uh, college students, Free speech is not a core value to them. It, they have been taught that it takes a back seat uh, to identity politics so that on a, a range of issues there's a correct position on gay marriage and other stuff is, is not just a different point of view, it's wrong. Uh, there's a correct uh, position on transgender rights and other stuff is not mm -hmm. just a disagreement. It's wrong. Uh, there's a correct position on climate change. There's a correct position on Islam. There's a correct position on immigration. Well, if you keep adding to those list of subjects on which there's one permitted point of view, there's actually not a lot left to have any kind of uh, open debate about. And it's actually that's one reason why their skills <clears throat> are uh, atrophying on yes. that. It's also one reason. I think, you know, we, we were talking about comedy earlier. I think yeah. uh, comedy is actually one of the victims of that, that, uh, you, you know, comedy depends on a certain element of recognition. And, uh, and, and things that you recognize, you can no longer say on the left, uh, right, which, right. Which, which is why so many, you know, Jerry Seinfeld and, and other comedians just mm. have stopped playing university campuses because uh, there's nothing you can actually mm – -hmm. the, 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 the list of things that you can make approved jokes about – has got shorter and shorter and shorter. Do you see? Is there any similarity to what to this in Canada? Is there that polarization in Canada, or is it just purely an American phenomenon? No, right I think now? it's true. I think it's tr true in when I ran. I ran into some legal difficulties with Canada's uh, human rights commissions about a decade ago, mm. and. Uh, uh, Jonah Goldberg at National Review uh, mm -hmm. wrote that uh, he goes, uh, Canada is like one uh, uh, American, is like one big American university campus. <laughs> Either that or every American university campus is like, like a little Canada. Canada. <laughs> and you see it, you see it to the same, you see it. The phenomenon in Australia, you see it yes. in Europe. Yep. Um, I'm always astonished at the way we we surrender free speech so easily. Um, the, the way even successful and powerful people mm -hmm. are scared yeah. um, and actually back down. And it, it, uh, it amazes – when Carrie Fisher died um, – mm -hmm. uh, a couple of years back, uh, uh, Carrie and uh, Debbie Reynolds, yep. her mother, her died mom. within a yes. few days of mm -hmm. each other. It's a very sad thing. And Paul Simon, who'd been married to Carrie Fisher, mm. and uh, I, I, I remember this because I'd, I'd spent a few days with Paul Simon at his house out on Montauk, and I remember we were just like sitting on the terrace one night, and we were talking about Debbie Reynolds because he was like a... Who, who was his mother-in-law, right. and he was, like, amazed at, at her business acumen because she was, like, cleaning up in Vegas. <laughs> she, she bought all the stuff that MGM wanted to throw out, uh -huh. and she was sitting on a fortune. And he was just, like, so he, he was, like, 
talking as a as one rock star to a, to this happy uh, you know chirpy tap dancer like amazed at the business act. And and so when uh, Carrie Fisher died, he he gave he did a heartfelt tweet. Steve Martin did a heartfelt tweet. Yes. And they both referred to how, you know, she was beautiful and uh, and, and I think Steve Martin said, oh, the most beautiful girl I, when I met her, mm. the most beautiful. And immediately all these Twitter people fall on them and say, you can't say that. You're diminishing a, a person because you're just ab- obsessing on her looks. Who the hell are you? That's you're ridiculous. tweeting at a guy who was married to yeah. the woman. <laughs> he knows her. You don't. Why? How dare you? In the in the in the moment, in the instant of his grief, impose your stupid rules uh, on how he wants to express his grief uh, for his former wife, and the and the and that's what is fascinating to me about identity politics yeah. is that it actually winds up dehumanizing you, mm-hmm. so that you can know you, you so that. You become actually angry about people relating to each other at a human level because all you can do is put them into your identity yes. politics yeah. boxes. You know, I do have to say, though, with the college campuses that I think schools like UC Berkeley mm. and NYU give the rest of the American schools a bad rep because I just graduated the University of South Carolina mm. almost a year ago. Mm. And I could tell you firsthand that down down there in the southeast, University of Georgia, University of Florida, mm-hmm. these these problems that they're having, that Berkeley's having, right. it's not going on down there. And the conservative voice and the liberal voice is cherished. Maybe not by everyone, but we don't have people protesting like that. They allow both to they be al- heard. Exactly. Yeah. And but I will say this. And I wonder if this is happening at schools like Berkeley and other ones. When I was there, there were some liberals that were, worked in the offices in the housing department as the RAs. And right. they pushed the liberal agenda onto freshmen coming in. Oh, let's talk about this. Let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. Liberal issues. So I do wonder, you know, how much of it is a school-wide issue, a campus-wide issue, rather than just the people who are – you know, pushing it down a lot of freshmen and other impressionable students on on campus. Hmm. No, I think I think that's that's true. I mean, I think generally there's been a massive, there's been an overexpansion of higher education, but within that, an overexpansion of uh, an administrative bureaucracy, which is yeah. in large part a, a, an exercise in social engineering. You have mm-hmm. people with absolutely uh, – I, I was talking to Lindsay Shepard, a, um, a young lady who at um, – Wilfred Laurier University in mm-hmm. Canada, and uh, that name will mean nothing to you. But no, Ash, Ash is <laughs> leaping to say Sir Wilfred was the first francophone prime minister in Canada. Why you? Yes, he was writing it down. the words and she was like hauled over the coals. But it was interesting to me when I talked to her. The, the, the titles that these people had, uh, you know, who was uh, I, I, they had. Had you know the deputy assistant dean of gendered violence and identity <laughs> issues and things like that. I mean, there, there is an absurd, 
a, a level of bureaucracy now at these places that is attempting uh, to enforce these things. And I don't say it's every university. And in fact, I think a lot of the times it actually starts, you know, there was the famous uh, thing at the Oxford Union um, in the early 30s, this mm. ha the famous motion, this house would not vote for king and country. And people thought, well, they're just privileged elites yes. at the most prestigious university. Mm -hmm. But a lot of what's changed is that a lot of those ideas now have come down from the most decadent and elite institutions mm. to the fact that they're actually routine in grade school and kindergarten. Yeah. Mm. So a lot of the time, you know, by the time you're 18 or 19, you've already had uh, a decade or more of this stuff. Mm -hmm. What could Canadians teach Americans? Are they as polite as we were told they are, Canadians? Are they that polite? <laughs> I don't. I don't think. If I had to say, and I say this as someone who loves Quebec, I, I would say if you wanted to meet perhaps the rudest uh, people on, <laughs> on the North American continent, it would be Quebecers. And God bless, as I said, God yeah. bless them. I love that. You know, against that, you know. Uh, they are also, I believe, the, the, they have the most beautiful women folk on the North uh, American continent. So it's all about trade-offs. You know, she'll, she, you'll have a real striking piece of eye candy, but she'll make your life hell. So, so there are always... Be careful. Your Twitter page, the Twitter might start I know, attacking no, 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 you now. I know. I'm, I'm way beyond that. And I love the way, you know, when you're... Uh, what I always get frustrated about is if I've been north of the border, like I'm driving around in Quebec and yep. then I drive across the border into Vermont and suddenly you're you're um, sitting behind somebody who's like uh, doing uh, 28 miles an hour uh, <laughs> you know for the whole yes. and and and, uh, and of course because you, you're like in this uh, psyched up Quebec <laughs> mode of driving and I love the way uh, one of my newspapers in New Hampshire uh, rated all because Massachusetts drivers have uh -huh. a low reputation uh -huh. in New Hampshire and it was like grading all of them, you know, New Hampshire drivers like mm -hmm. Vermont drivers like that, Massachusetts drivers <laughs> are pushy, uh, <laughs> obnoxious for speed. Uh -huh. Quebec drivers just pull over to the shoulder <laughs> and wait till they go. go. It's like, uh, so I, I think. I think Canadians' niceness is overrated, and I, res ah. I resent that. And the interesting <laughs> – uh, because I – you know, if you had – for example, uh, if you'd been touring the North American continent – in, say, 1938 or 39, mm -hmm. and you'd just gone on trains around the U.S. and Canada, you would have thought Canada was the martial nation. You would have seen a lot more right. men in uniform mm -hmm. going about Canada. Uh, Canada, in 1945, the Royal Canadian Navy was the third largest surface fleet in Is that the world. Um, as uh, Ash, Ash will know this, mm. but the, uh, on D-Day, there were five beaches. The, yep. uh, the Americans got two, and the uh, uh, British Empire got three, of which mm -hmm. two were UK and one were Canadian. Mm -hmm. And almost all uh, military historians agree that the Canadians got the toughest uh, assignment beach. Yeah. yeah and um and so i don't like this oh we're the nice people no no we we weren't <laughs> nice on d-day no. and we weren't you know and this and this whole this uh, and and there's a whole but other... nice doesn't mean to say weak no no but but there is a whole 
this this idea that we're just all Trudeauian pansies, <laughs> that, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau, uh, the twelve-year-old uh, boy trapped in a twelve-year-old girl's body, <laughs> I have, uh, you know, they, who who, uh, who who toured India. I mean, he and Hillary did successive tours of India. That's right. And they swapped wardrobes. So he was not storming the beach on D-Day. So Justin Trudeau tours tours India looking like a bride, dressed as a bridesmaid in a Bollywood movie, and like the Indian press can't make out what the hell. And then Hillary lands, and she's wearing all her Nehru jackets, and they're thinking, what the hell are they doing? This went out when Prime Minister Nehru returned, you know. So I have no idea. I don't. Li- I don't like the idea of. Oh, why can't we all? It's. It's. That's basically a uh, a liberal chimera. You know this yes. whole thing. Oh well. You know when Trump's elected, we're all going to. It's a bit. Canada is basically the liberals' rapture. You know that when 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 well, half of the American celebrities should be living in Canada right now because they're all vowed to move there, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. They all vowed to move. Yeah, and they're all. Yeah, and they're all there every week anyway because every American <laughs> movie is filmed Made in there. Vancouver. Yes. And Montreal, so it's not as if it's yeah. not like it's not like you know saying, "Oh, I'm moving to Chad." The property prices <laughs> yeah, yeah. are very reasonable. They already know the market. You know, <laughs> Didn't they always say about Canada that Canada could have had mm. British culture. Right. They could have had American technology and French cuisine. Right. right. Instead, they ended up with <laughs> American culture, British cuisine, and yeah. French technology. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah no, no, no. There's a. Yeah. There's, there is a, 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 a. But 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 it is just. It's so. It's it's like desperately. I I mean that whole thing of you know Alec Baldwin uh, yes, and yes. Uh, Lena Dunham. Oh, if Trump wins, we're going to move to. I mean, it's so insulting to say you know when the powder came goes up here then we'll go to Canada. And they assume, of course, that Canada will take them. Yes, yes, which yeah. is, uh, which I would I would actually be surprised if uh, all these American celebrities were able to get past. <laughs> yes. And that's actually why Canadians need the wall. <laughs> uh, after <laughs> Do- Trump's second term, you, you're going to need something to keep Lena Dunham out. Uh, it's, uh, yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> so that wall is to keep American celebrities yeah. out. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Now, I want to take this to Europe. Now, you have famously talked about uh, Eurabia. Right. Uh, this concept of um, the Islamic religion right. take a dom- being the dominant religion of Europe someday. And I want to ask you, how do you still feel about that statement, especially with this, this migrant crisis that the continent's having right now? Well... People don't understand uh, demographics, which is a simple thing. Of a, well, there's two things about demographics. People think you're making predictions, mm-hmm. uh, and it isn't really because if you only have, say, um, you know, a million babies born this year, 
it's hard to have two million people entering the workforce in 20 years' time. Uh, so that's not a prediction. You can go to the maternity wards mm. and see what your future is going to look yeah. like. And if you go, my mother was Belgian, uh, for example. It would astonish her to learn that in Antwerp, a city she knew very well, a majority uh, of uh, children in the uh, grade schools are Muslim now. They're no longer uh, Catholic. Uh, and things like that have happened in an extraordinarily swift uh, – uh, I mean extraordinary speed. Mm -hmm. Swede, Sweden, which is not anybody's idea of a big nation of mm. immigrants uh, – Ethnic Swedes are going to be a minority in their own country by 2050. And again, when you people don't really think of the future because when you say 2050, it sounds like a long way away. But it's basically from 1990 to now. Mm -hmm. right. So forget the Roseanne reboot. Think about when you watched Roseanne first time <laughs> round. It's actually... You know, 2050 will be here sooner than yeah. you think. Before you know it. Yeah. And, 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 and Sweden will be utterly transformed. And I'm, I'm, I like Sweden. Mm. I like uh, ABBA. Uh, <laughs> I, no, I do. I, I, do. I love Bjorn Borg. He was great. Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't like him. Bjorn no, like from ABBA, which was much better. <laughs> Bjorn Borg was just like a, an ace machine. Yes, uh, yes. And... Uh, but I love and and I was uh, I I was in Sweden a couple of years ago and I went to I can't remember now whether it's Benny or Bjorn from ABBA mm -hmm. one of them had gotten mixed up with some little Swedish folk music group centered around this little town in central Sweden and I kept, happened to pass through that town in the middle yeah. of the woods in central Sweden thought I'd look up uh, you know this little mm. bit of. Swedish folk music that Benny or Bjorn, as the yeah. case may be, had been from ABBA, uh, from ABBA, had been so excited by. And I've driven for a hundred kilometers through the Swedish woods, and I come to this little town in the middle of nowhere. And the first thing I see is the the, the little supermarket on the edge of town, and this group of covered women coming out of it. And it and it was and I laughed and I thought to myself, that's like amazing. From Abba to Abahu Akbar in, <laughs> in a short amount in, of time. And, uh, and, uh, and it's like a cute joke, but it isn't no, really. It's yeah. actually it's it's happening and it's sad. And and I'm not even by the way, I'm not a multiculturalist because mm. one of the things I like about um I used to like about travel is, uh, you know, you could, you, as I said, my mother was Belgian, mm -hmm. and you could go like 50 miles in any direction. You'd be in another country where mm -hmm. the language, language was different, yes, yeah. different architectural styles, different food. Uh, and it was interesting to me. And I, I find multicultural, it's not even a, like a racial thing. I just feel mm. it's, it's making everything boring. It's making yeah. every big well, city the same. you're losing your identity. And, you know, yeah. the, the aging of Europe is, is a yeah. massive problem. Yeah. Yeah. Native-born people are getting older and dying right. yeah. off and being replaced by a much greater Muslim population. Mm -hmm. it's, just, it's just a matter of time yeah. before that population overcomes the native population. It's just a numbers game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, I think it's very hard to buck the numbers game, and it has, like, and it has huge implications for things. People, mm -hmm. I find, for example, in London, it's very interesting. I, I was walking down the uh, commercial road mm -hmm. uh, in the east end of London, yep. 
Um, and many, many years ago, I, I briefly, I'd briefly dated a nurse at the Royal London Hospital in Whitechapel, and we used to go to... That's very East End. <laughs> yeah, very East End. And we used to go, like, round the corner to a pub called The Blind Beggar, which was famous <laughs> because one of the Cray brothers, who uh, oh. were a notorious London gang, had walked in and uh, shot a guy, and the bullet had passed through him, hit the jukebox, uh, uh, and the jukebox had started playing The Sun Ain't Gonna Shine Anymore, (laughs) which was, for this guy, was true. So so it was like all Eastern, all of it, let's go go down the old Kent Road, as your father, all that. Pop your uncle, yeah. And and I walked down, I walked down, uh, I was walking through the East End, and... I, I, I suddenly noticed that like things like famous gay pubs had gone. And then I noticed, which you think that's fair enough because, mm. you know, it's, it's Islamized. That's, that's understandable. And then I noticed that all the chip shops had gone too. And mm. so it's actually hard to get fish and chips in, in, London. in London's East, in East End. End yeah. and, and these things happen far faster uh, than than people think yeah. they do. Well, for five years running, the most popular boy's name in London is Muhammad. Yeah. yeah. yeah no. Well, I, I even make jokes about New York because I used to say, you know, you know, this to your point that you know culture disappears quickly. Mm-hmm. I used to make a joke. You know, I don't have to travel outside of New York because if I want to go to China, I'll go to Chinatown. If I want to go to, <laughs> you know, yeah. if I want to go to Italy, I go to Italy. If I want to go to Russia, I go to Brighton Beach. Right. Right. Now. Yeah. It's all the same, New York, really. Yeah, but, yeah, and I think that's actually one of the. I don't. I don't really like. I find that. I find that sad because nothing yeah. is quite. And and that's true. Even in an. I would say even in an intra-Muslim sense. I mean, one place I find always mm. find very interesting is Rosengard, uh, which is the uh, on uh, just outside downtown Malmo in Sweden. And when you go there, it's one hundred percent Muslim. But what's interesting to me is that. Even um, Muslim women who uh, came to Sweden from, like, the Balkans or the Central Asian stands Mm -hmm. and who had never had to be covered when they were in the Balkans or Mm -hmm. those stands, when they move to Sweden and they live in Rosengard, they have to be covered. So you're getting – it's not even as if you're getting an authentic Bosnian or Tajik woman right. living in your neighborhood. She's become she she has been submerged within some identity that's neither Swedish nor Bosnian, and right. she's like mm-hmm. uh, in 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 something that's uh, the, some some strange East meets West thing that is unique to that ghetto, and it's very bizarre that. Yeah, we've talked a lot about Brexit, Mark, and we'll, we'll wrap this up soon. I promise, because we could talk all afternoon, all night. You're trapped in here, buddy. Um, you know, I was in Britain covering Brexit, and I know you did a lot on it as well. And the sentiment there wasn't particularly anti. It wasn't, um, you know, fear of foreigners by any mm-hmm. means. It was just people fed up with the directions that were coming out of Brussels, and both from a law point of view and just from regulations. Um, 
how do you see the future of Europe? A lot has been said about the Eurozone, that it's teetering, that, you know, you have this, uh, you know, you have the German-French alliance right now, but certainly the southern countries, the Italys, the Greeces, Greece is always broke, let's be honest, mm. but the Italys are very, um, you know, they, they do not like what's been happening, and there is a threat that they could ultimately drop out, which would bring the whole thing falling down. Yeah, I think... Uh I think we're past the limits of European integration, mm. and uh, there will be a kind of de, uh, uh, not not necessarily total disintegration, but I think there 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 will be a separating out, and there will be a de facto multi-speed U, uh, Europe for very mm. basic reasons. You know, I think when. Angela Merkel understands that uh, whatever the European Union may pretend, that Greeks are not Germans, and there's a, there's a difference, yeah. and that it is, as it almost always is everywhere, it's the human capital that determines the kind of society mm. uh, you live in. And, and, uh, and that, that is a reality that... Uh, I mean, I mean, what's funny to me about we, when we were talking about the uh, refugee thing earlier mm. is that a Angela Merkel understands that you can't turn Greeks into Germans, but she thinks you can take millions and millions <laughs> of Sudanese and Yemeni and they can be Germans in 20 right. minutes. In right. a sense, uh, but, but, but she's right on the first thing. You can't turn Greeks into Germans. And I think the other interesting lesson is the pushback from Eastern Europe on mm. some of these migration issues, that they don't want to mm -hmm. go the way yeah. Western Europe uh, has gone. I find Brexit... I, I, I was there on the morning of Brexit, yes. and I'd gone to bed uh, seeing a very disappointed-looking Nigel Farage yes, uh, and yes. assumed that uh, <laughs> assumed that the thing was lost. And I, I like woke up. I had to catch a flight to Dublin, the little yeah. shuttle from Heathrow yes. to Dublin. And uh, I wake up and I sort of switch the TV on, and there's an ashen-faced uh, David Cameron, uh, David Dave, David Dimbleby oh, on the Dimbleby. BBC, oh, yes. yeah, <laughs> announcing that the and I go to Heathrow Airport. <laughs> And the announcer on the tannoy is doing all this stuff. Please be advised that despite the Brexit vote, our flights will still be permitted to depart at the shed. So it's all like last train from Berlin. It's like, and we all get on this like little uh, puddle jumper to yeah. Dublin uh, with Aer Lingus, and they uh, and they're like popping the champagne. They're popping the champagne corks. <laughs> and we're all laughing about these like wacky yes. announcements that the world has ended at Heathrow, on the Heathrow Airport, and it's it's kind of pathetic uh, because mm. to go back to my vice regal gags <laughs> yes. uh, 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 about the Marquis of Dufferin, you know when I, that people say, well, you know. Uh, the United Kingdom hasn't handled its own trade policy since 1973. It's absurd to think we can just start trading with nations. All that. you know, this is a country. What? This is a country that has written the constitutions of over 50 sovereign states, starting starting with my own, uh, 1867. And if yep. you look at the 1867 British North America Act, and then if you look at a decolonized, uh, you know. 
in the 80s, Belize mm. or the Solomon Islands. Mm-hmm. It's basically the 1867 template uh, all over again. Everyone, and, and, and so the United Kingdom's position is that the Solomon Islanders can handle sovereignty, <laughs> but, the, but the mother country is, uh, yes. you know, Doesn't know just, what to do. <laughs> no, and I remember after the Iraqi constitution, I got yeah. this fantastic email <laughs> from a retired uh, Welsh colonial office civil servant that began having written the constitutions of three countries myself, which I thought was like the coolest line ever. And, uh, and suddenly, suddenly the only the only colony in the entire British Empire that cannot move to self-government is the United it's Kingdom. The it's like, I mean, this is they, that has been a pathetic thing to have it to really listen has. to. Yeah. But they'll get it sorted out. They're going to have to. I mean, it's you know, next year they'll be gone. So yeah, no, they better warn quick. <laughs> no, no, no. I, and I will be, I will be glad to. Uh, and you're going to be covering it with a lot of humor. Yeah, well, it will, it will be a great a moment. And uh, I like, I like Nigel Farage. I mean, Nigel Farage is a, that's he's a very good example. He'll never be prime minister. He'll never no. be foreign secretary. He'll never be uh, chancellor of the exchequer or anything like that. And yet, he has been more consequential oh, than yes. any of the people who held those positions mm-hmm. and are already entirely forgotten. It's nothing better than watch Nigel Farage stand up and give a speech at the uh, European Parliament you know, in Strasbourg and no. just rail them for a half no. an hour where they all just stare at him in you know, mortifying looks and he is having the time of his yeah, life. Yeah, no, I know and he's a very good example of how if you're uh, if you're secure and you're rooted in, uh, in, in what you think. What you believe. Uh, and all, again, he's another one. He broke all the rules, all mm-hmm. that uh, smoking. And I actually did a thing. <laughs> I, I spoke with Nigel. We we were debate partners in Toronto oh. uh, a couple of years back. And uh, Nigel is a serious guy to debate with because he'd been furious. He'd arrived about an hour before me, and he'd been oh. furious that there was no drink in the dressing room. So they'd, <laughs> they'd had, you know, because they're these abs- abstemious Torontonians. And... Uh, he, he'd, uh, Where's my booze? So they'd gone and got all these like bottles of red wine for <laughs> him, and I, I, so I thought, oh, I don't, I don't really like mm. drinking before I go. I'm not very good uh, sober, mm. and I'm not that great. <laughs> so I, I, I say to to my assistant, I say, oh, could you just get me, you know, a glass of Sauvignon Blanc? And he yeah. says. Uh, he goes, what the, is that you drink? It looks a uh, looks a bit like a Nancy boy drink. <laughs> <laughs> so. So I, I had to so I had to butch up for uh, yes, for, for, for going on stage, and he I, he's fan, he's has a fantastic view of uh, of regular. I mean, he was he wanted to smoke, so they yes. tell him uh, that they, you can't smoke within <laughs> nine meters of a building in Toronto, and he goes nine nine, nine meters. meters. That that must be a that's a that must have been a ruthlessly negotiated <laughs> compromise. You know, it's like, <laughs> We uh, we wanted to make it ten, but they weren't ready to go there yet. Give us a couple of years, and uh, and and I think I, I don't. I I would just like politicians to be in uh, to be normal, uh, and in that sense, as outrageous as they appear, uh, both Nigel and Donald Trump, mm-hmm. um, they're doing they're doing. Uh, 
representative government a huge service by just saying you can stagger around saying all the wrong things, doing all the wrong things, and none of it matters. Because the people who tell us, uh, oh, this, is, this disqualifies you and that disqualifies you are the people who want to keep politics as a tight little club for a professional political class, and that's a disaster. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to leave it right there. Mark Stein, thank you so much for coming in today. You're always a mine of information, but you also do it with a lot of tremendous wit and insight. And even for a Canadian, he's a good guy, huh? Not what did you bad. say? Not too bad. I went a little to a, rude, but... I went, I went to a comedy club in Calgary, as you do. Right. And um, I remember the comedian there saying, you know, Americans always make fun of us because we say A at the end of everything. Mm. He said, we want to actually call them something else, but we just use the first letter. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll leave it right there. I can neither confirm nor deny her. <laughs> and that does it for the Ashley Webster Experience. Uh, Ashley Webster alongside Brian Solomon. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back here next time. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.